You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Hurwitz, here on the Westwood One Podcast Network at CRTV. And indeed, it is a late start to a new work week. It's actually Monday night I'm recording here in my home studio with my kids flying around the place. Hopefully they won't bust in the door. Um, pretty rowdy tonight, but it was it was really great having just a long weekend to take in everything that's been going on the last couple of weeks. It's been pretty brutal last couple of weeks. And this week with Congress out, I want to get to some of the stuff we haven't been able to get to our promised campaign segments, meet the candidate segments. I got two guys lined up I want you to meet. Um, we're going to try to schedule that at a specific time. And then just to draw in from what's been going on, a lot of people forget what happened last week given that the long holiday weekend and the Florida shooting just overshadowed everything. Uh, So we've totally forgotten what went on with immigration, where we go from here. I got a lot to talk about the courts, how it ties into George Washington's legacy. And by the way, it's really nice this year that so-called President's Day falls out on February 19th when it actually should which is George Washington's birthday, because let's face it, there is only one president that we are supposed to celebrate around this time of year. Um, Look, I must state my own guilt here. I did go shopping for a couch today, and that's kind of how George Washington's birthday got hijacked. Um, You know, they wanted a long holiday weekend. Government workers got off, and... uh, you know, this kind of generic President's Day um, is just is just insane. But really, the holiday, as we know, is supposed to be George Washington's birthday. So this week, we're supposed to be celebrating the actual birthday of our founding father. Because as as um, and, and I'm going to link to this in show notes, but I want you to hear this from President Calvin Coolidge. In 1927, he gave a great speech on the legacy of George Washington, but he wrote the following about him. His was the directing spirit without which there would have been no independence, no union, no constitution, and no republic. His ways were the ways of truth. He built for eternity. His influence grows. His stature increases with increasing years. In wisdom of action and purity of character, he stands alone. We cannot yet estimate him. We can only indicate our reverence for him and thank the divine providence which sent him to serve and inspire his fellow men. You guys really should read this full speech, um, beautiful speech by Calvin Coolidge, as were most of his speeches, just delving into the significance of George Washington. And it's pretty eerie standing today celebrating this generic president's day when we examine the scope of the office of the presidency in that the founding era 
they really feared that the presidency would bring the most controversy, that the president could kind of transform into a king. And it was George Washington that set the precedent for a limited office of the presidency. My gosh, our founders could never have envisioned that one day we would be living in a judicial autocracy where the federal judiciary, these unelected judges, hold more power than their worst nightmare in terms of the office of the chief executive transmogrifying into an office that would promote tyranny. They could never imagine an office that had the power to decide all elections, election maps, re literally rename men and women, rename a marriage, and as we see in our own day, make denizens of aliens, violate national sovereignty, and give citizen rights to illegal aliens. We could never imagine that. So it's it's kind of eerie celebrating George Washington's legacy The fact that his humility led him to set this precedent of only serving two terms, of not turning the office into a monarch. And yet everything he feared one day in the office of the presidency is now manifest in the office of hundreds of federal district judges. So we're going to get to that a little bit more today. Just a couple of uh, in-house notes here. You know, last week's show, I really appreciate all of your feedback on it. My idea for a new contract with America, working with the Freedom Caucus to try to bring forth new ideas. So I want to tell you guys, if you haven't seen it already, Mark Meadows, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, announced a push to bring to the president legislation on term limits. Now, I know this is not a new idea. It's an old old idea, but it's an oldie but a goodie. It is a good idea. Is it ever going to be enacted in, in, in this uh, stage of our republic? No. But it, it is important for conservatives to disentangle and stand for things that are right, and I think this is a good start. So you know, my plan, I didn't fully pitch it yet, but it is, it is growing legs, and, and some of the members are thinking along these lines even without – even before I spoke to them. So this is good news. Another uh, in-house note from, from CRTV – our big uh, CRTV host, Mark Levin, as you're all familiar with, he's, he's beginning his Sunday night weekly TV show on Fox News next Sunday. So you definitely want to tune in. I never watch Fox News for obvious reasons, as you well know. But this much-needed, long-form, deep discussion of the issues of the day, but also of our foundational values, constitution, law, history, traditions. A lot of what we do here on our platform, Mark plans on bringing to Fox News, which is much needed. So watch out for that. I, I'll probably be on his show you know, sometime in the first month, and I'll, I'll let you know when that's going to take place. I hate doing TV, but my gosh, to, to be on Mark Levin's uh, Fox show, I'll do that any day. I mean, because that is what he is striving for, to, talk, to go beyond the talking points, to actually delve into the philosophy behind what we believe in and what we can do about it. So before going on to, you know, again, some, some of the major topics, and I, and I do want to go through some of George Washington's legacy and how he felt about some of our current issues, just as, as a special show this week celebrating George Washington's birthday – 
what I want to get into first is Florida. Now, I don't want to talk about it, but I am talking about it by not talking about it. A lot of radio hosts called me up over the weekend and they're like, Daniel, could you come on my show? And I was like, all right, you want to talk about immigration? No, no, I want to talk about, you know, Parkville. But, you know, I, I, want to, I want to talk about it. I want, I want to talk about guns. I'm like, there's nothing political about what happened. Now, unfortunately, since then, the left has made it so political. So, you know, we're having a gun debate as as an end to itself. So I guess that now is political. But what's interesting is whatever is political, we ignore. In other words, what is fundamentally a public policy problem, we don't address. What is fundamentally the government acting as the arsonist and then dressing up as the firefighter, we ignore. Whether it's healthcare, whether it's immigration, whether it's broad domestic criminal justice um, policies. But when you have these anomalies, and I understand they happen a lot and they're happening a lot, mental illness among our own citizenry, and they just you know blow up at some point. You could talk about the psychology and what we do in our culture about it. But there is nothing anyone is proposing that could help this. Let me frame this in a way you're not going to hear anywhere else. On Thursday, this past Thursday, the same day that we had this tragic shooting taking the lives of 17 youngsters, mainly youngsters, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted on a major piece of legislation. And I'm the only one talking about this because everyone else in Washington either doesn't know about it or they downright Gosh, they, they downright support it. All the money behind these so-called conservative think tanks, certainly the libertarian think tanks, they're all promoting what they call criminal justice reform. And as you know, I call it jailbreak because that's what it is. Retroactively releasing the most violent prisoners from federal prison. Now, obviously, as you well know, those of you who have been with me for a while, and we'll link to the article in show notes, I have a lot of links in this article to many of my past um, columns just going through. I have a whole fact sheet, fact versus myth on criminal justice reform, just the entire premise behind it, the trends in crime, the trends in incarceration that, that the left is completely making up. But among the many leniencies in this bill, which, by the way, gives federal judges more discretion as if they don't have enough, it has a provision retroactively opening cases of convicted gun, gun felons to potentially let them out early from prison. And, and keep in mind, I mean, you know, you're only in federal prison if you're a bad dude. Obviously, there's certain white-collar crimes. And, and, and let me just say from the onset, I am all, as you know, I'm a federalist guy. I'm all about devolving certain statutes, criminal justice statutes, to the states. I do believe that there are too many federal criminal statutes that should be taken care of on a state level. But nonetheless, no legislation that I'm seeing actually does that. All it does is keep the existing federal system and just jailbreak. Let them go. Let them go. Leniency. Leniency. Let the federal judges decide. At least put it back in the realm of the states if you're going to do that. But it doesn't do that. It's just jailbreak. So the third most common federal conviction is for gun crimes. 
on the same day – now, keep in mind that some of the most vocal gun control pimps in the Senate that politicize every tragedy and make it about gun control, they sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee. You got Dianne Feinstein, Chuck Schumer, Dick Durbin, Kamala Harris, um, Pat Leahy, Sheldon Whitehouse, all these clowns. They voted – it was a 16 to 5 vote, overwhelming, bipartisan support. And as I tell you guys all the time, on the major issues, both parties agree. They passed this bill that, among other things, had a provision, Section 104 of this legislation. It's the, you know, what do they call it? S S nineteen seventeen, if you want to look at it. It's the bipartisan comprehensive criminal justice reform package. The Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act of 2017. They introduced the same thing in 2015. Those of you who are with us at the beginning of the show, 2015, I, I talked a lot about this. Um, and it, what's interesting is Chuck Grassley admitted that after they passed it out of committee in 2015, they didn't want to bring it to the Senate floor because five to six Republicans were vulnerable. So they understand this is very unpopular outside of the nerdy circles in Washington where it's very popular even among so-called conservatives. But sections 104, section 105 of the bill, it would reduce mandatory minimum sentences for those charged with firearms violations during the course of drug offenses. These are really bad guys. The guys that use – it's a whole category of using firearms in furtherance of drug trafficking. On the very same day that they were politicizing the Florida shooting and the very same people. And meanwhile, Chuck Grassley, who's the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, but he pretty much turned the committee over to the, to the Democrats. He said, yeah, we got, we got to do something, do something, do something, do something about guns. A couple hours later, he passes a bill to potentially let a bunch of gun felons out of prison. The reason why I'm bringing this up when no one's making this juxtaposition is because this, folks, is liberalism as an, in, in a nutshell. You paint a broad brush, cast a wide net on a fundamental constitutional right under the supposed guise of addressing a public policy issue when it has nothing to do with it. And then when you actually have something targeted to the actual criminals who use guns for bad things known to have used them, convicted in federal prison, sitting and serving federal time, retroactively potentially release them. Well, because we're a bunch of sympathetic people, right? We're good people. We don't want to lock these people up. But then they have the nerve to come after the guns of all law-abiding citizens. This is everything in a nutshell. What is politicized, what is political doesn't get politicized enough. What shouldn't be political gets politicized. And what I mean by political is something that is redressable through public policy initiatives or by changing existing policy, especially at a federal level. Now, there's a lot you could do on a local level. You know, Mark Levin had a whole show on this. The whole decision over what type of security you're going to have and you're going to pay for at your schools, that's something that local communities need to decide. It's nothing we can do on a federal level. Obviously, the whole idea of, you know, gun gun free zones. And look, I'm not going to do what the left does and you know 
politicize it the other way and say, oh, well, we have these shootings because we don't have enough freedom of the Second Amendment. I will say I believe very, of course, you know, very much so that if you would have ubiquitous carry to the extent you have these shootings, there wouldn't be as many casualties because they would be mowed down pretty quickly. I mean, notice in Israel, whenever you have these shootings and they have bombings, they have rammings, they have all sorts of things um, from the jihadists. But when it comes to shootings, you usually don't hear more than two or three people getting killed because, you know, before they could have a, a mass casualty event, someone with a gun mows the guy down. But again, that, that's not an explanation for why we have them. It, it's a problem in the culture, some sort of mix of an increase in mental illness with today's culture, you know, because in the past, mental illness was more associated with suicides, other things. Um, you know, now it's kind of a mix of the two. I am not a psychologist. I'm not going to delve into something I don't know, which is why I refuse to talk about this on radio. I'm not an expert in that. I'm, an, I'm a, somewhat of an expert in some public policy issues. And when you have – here is what a, is a political issue. You know, in a free country that's not like North Korea, when you have random people that are going to commit you know, mass acts of violence with no signs, although this guy, obviously you know, F, the FBI was apprised of him, and that's a whole other dimension to this I'm not going to get into today. But when you have, for example, where I live in Baltimore, what's going on here – is a public policy issue. It's not a natural disaster. It's not something that you just can't do anything about. It's a direct result of, quote, give space to destroy, of the war on the cops, barring all of their more aggressive police tactics, terrible laws regarding juveniles, which, by the way, this jailbreak bill that passed the Senate Judiciary Committee has a whole bunch of retroactive leniencies allowing um, – we call it the MS-13 provision – allowing anyone who is convicted 20, 30, 40 years of, of prison, maybe life in prison without parole as a juvenile, it allows them to reopen their sentencing after 20 years served. Now, you might be asking, well, who – was convicted as a juvenile for life in prison that's sitting in a federal penitentiary. I mean, you would be, you know, murder, rape, burglary. It's usually going to be a state crime. Bingo. MS-13. It's, an, it's usually an immigration issue or it has what to do as a foundation in immigration because it's a foreign national. That's why it's in the federal system. You are going to let MS-13 people potentially open up their sentencing. And there's a whole bunch of stuff on expungement and sealing of records, which is a big problem that we have here in the Baltimore area with um, these 16 to 18-year-olds just wreaking havoc on communities with all sorts of carjacking and burglaries and everything. And guess what? They often catch them. They find out they have three to five felonies within the past year, but it's catch and release. That's a public policy issue. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to talk about the increased crime in places like Baltimore and Chicago in general as a result of deracinating the last two decades worth of tough on crime, both policing at the front, on the front end of the criminal justice system, the sentencing end, the back end, letting them go. That's a public policy issue. But when you have these random plots where someone just 
plots to commit mass murder. It's very hard to stop that from a public policy standpoint. The and and we would argue the best way to cut down on it is to stop having the gun-free zones. Again, I don't want to politicize it and say that's going to stop. That's going to take care of the cultural mental illness problem, whatever it is. But it certainly is the best way to prevent a mass casualty event in most circumstances. Most of 98% of these shootings over the past number of decades have occurred in gun-free zones. Now, obviously, if you're about to commit mass murder, you're not going to be deterred by hoops thrown up to getting a gun. Because here, here's the reality. Nobody, at least openly on the left, is promoting a policy of going house to house, collecting guns and melting them down. They're talking about bump stocks and these random little thing, you know, pinpricks. I'm saying even if you agree that it's guns that's causing it, what they're proposing is purely political. It's not redressing anything. It's nonsense. Pure nonsense. But that's the thing. There are certain things that are political. When you have general lax on crime laws and you have an increase in crime, that's a public policy issue. That's a general trend. You can't talk about individual acts. Stuff happens, unfortunately. And what's so sad is the biggest act of random, you know, the biggest casualty event of of a random mass shooting, the Vegas shooting, we still don't even know what went on. And that is a big public policy issue based on what seems to have gone on there with the foreign connections and everything. Crickets, nothing. But we're going to just rush into gun legislation before we even know what happened with the worst of these events. And this is why I talk so much about immigration. I say this all the time, and you heard me say this in the last shooting. We have a lot of problems in this country. We have a lot of cultural problems. We have a lot of problems with mental illness. We have a lot of problems with violence in our urban areas, in perpetuity, not just these anomalous mass shootings, but just the day-to-day stuff we have problems with. And it's getting worse in a lot of major metropolitan areas after 25 years of decline in crime. This is a very big problem no one wants to talk about because you could actually address it. They want to talk about what we can't address. But immigration is the most redressable grievance because you don't have to let these people in. And when you have ICE during Obama's era release 20,000 illegal aliens who are convicted of DUIs and you put them on the streets, well, gee, that's a direct problem. You know, I was joking around after the Senate Judiciary passed this bill on the same day of this mass shooting and all the virtue signaling about the need for gun legislation. I I was saying... Their policy could be summed up in a nutshell like this. Let the criminals out of jail and lock the guns up in jail. That's the absurdity of of their argument. The very same people that are weak on crime, that want to literally undermine and countermand probably the only positive social trend we've actualized over the past two, three decades. The miraculous, precipitous drop in, in crime nationwide. Violent crime, property crimes, and now it's headed back the other way because we're undoing the mandatory sentencing. We're undoing the aggressive police tactics. We're, we're throwing the police in jail. But they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about sanctuary cities. Law-breaking. They don't want to talk about that. 
go after a fundamental right when there is no evidence. And, and, and that's the thing. The only thing, the only glove you could lay a little bit on guns might be domestic violence. You could have a higher rate of domestic violence. Um, but in terms of this stuff, it has nothing to do with guns. The reality is maybe you could have had this debate 120 years ago. But but once you have millions upon millions upon millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of firearms on the market, there is nothing you could do at this point that will stop someone who is committed to mass murder. The only people you're going to stop are the law-abiding citizens, and that is the eternal lesson of places like Chicago and Baltimore, places with the stricter laws. It just doesn't work. What, you know, I, ca- I cannot carry a gun here where I live. Criminals sure don't have a problem doing that. So anyway, I didn't even intend to get into this, but, but this is what happened. This jailbreak legislation that you all need to know about, including letting out people who are convicted of firearms violations while engaging in drug trafficking. And you guys know these are the worst of the worst criminals. Let them go. Oh, but let's put the guns in jail. Actually, no, it's even worse than that. It's let the criminals out of jail and put the bump stocks, a term the media never even heard of until a couple months ago, let's put the bump stocks in prison. So that's essentially their plan for America. But now that we got got over that, and I'm sure it's not going to be the end to it, let's review what's happening with immigration, the courts, and the mixture of the two, our favorite issue. Here we are again. Like every other time they tried to push amnesty, really since 2006, 12 years ago, and by the way, that was really what pushed me into this business professionally. I was inspired by the fight in 2006 to block amnesty and block the open borders agenda being pushed by a Republican president at the time. And notice that they've tried so many times in the last 12 years and they cannot do it. It fizzled. They have no ability to pass amnesty despite the fact that the weight of the entire lobbying corporatist media world the masters of the universe, as Attorney General Sessions calls them, is upon this issue. Because as we know, the people do not want this. Now, we should be celebrating, right? Well, you know, Trump said he's going to end this March 5th, which is coming up in uh, two weeks, and this should be over with. My concern is this. This is where it's so important to discuss the issue of judicial tyranny, not just because of the immigration issue, but how it embodies the problem on every issue. Here we are. We have a clear national debate over the most political issue you could, matter, you could imagine. And again, political, like we defined at the beginning of the show, means that you could redress it through public policy because immigration, more than any other issue, really is a public policy issue. It is something that the people – through their political process, must decide who we want to let in, if we want to let them in, under what circumstances. And yet, that is stripped away from the people. They can't pass amnesty legislatively, but we have the residual executive amnesty from Obama being codified by judicial amnesty. We now have two district judges, this ass clown in San Francisco and Judge Nicholas Garofus in New York, 
among others, really, that have just, w- w- with the power of a district judgeship, saying, no, these people are citizens. They get to stay. They're here. And what's worse is the body politic of Congress and the president regard that as law. And therefore, ironically, we have to sit and wait for the gods at the Supreme Court to help us and overturn them, which everyone expects they will. But meanwhile, we have to wait until what's likely, based on just the clock, the calendar, the end of April, to get relief on this issue. And nobody wants to discuss it. I mean, this week I really hope to delve more into the courts. We're going to put more more work out on that. Um, I never published my manifesto, 12 Ways to Fight Back Against the Courts. Some stuff's from my book, Stolen Sovereignty. Some stuff is new. But you know, this might be a good week to put it out because this is just such a stark reminder of how our political process doesn't matter. We had a very passionate, spirited debate, and there is a conclusion, at least for now. But it's not a conclusion because the courts do what they want. The courts decide everything. And by the way, you're seeing this on a multi-pronged level on immigration and other issues. For example, there's already courts that are blocking the construction of a border wall in some areas because they're saying there's environmental concerns. Now, here's the problem. The statute, the Secure Fence Act, the original statute that authorized the president to construct the wall, which, by the way, is still – that is still the law of the land. The whole issue is funding, appropriations. But in terms of authorization, the president has authorization to build a wall pursuant to the Secure Fence Act of 2006. And in that bill, it specifically waived the environmental provisions that serve as obstacles to constructing the wall. And yet the judge says, screw it. I know the law says that. I don't care. We're not doing this. Just like they say, I know the law says these people have to be deported, but I'm going to grant them benefits because I feel like it. And because other branches of government crown me king, so I'll act like a king. Man, George, George Washington could have never envisioned something like that. And meanwhile, last week, once again, I mean, it's already pending before the Supreme Court, but the Fourth Circuit, just like the Ninth Circuit, declared civil disobedience, and said Trump cannot have better vetting for the countries on his list from Muslim countries as well as, by the way, North Korea and Venezuela. Evidently, you can't do that. It violates the Establishment Clause to have immigration laws. There's now a fundamental right to immigrate, but you, you already knew that. The courts have been doing this for a year, and we've allowed them to get away with it. And notice how the courts are doing this even after the Supreme Court supposedly slapped down these lower court judges. They're doing it again because they did this nonsense, split the baby. Well, if you have a bona fide relationship, we're going to allow the injunction to remain for now until the merits. And Clarence Thomas warned in his uh, partial dissent, partial concurrence that, wait a minute, this is just going to invite these same clownish organizations to go back to these same lower court judges, and keep chipping away at national sovereignty when none of this should be in court to begin with. There's no standing. Hey, how do you get standing as a mythical, hypothetical foreign national who may want to immigrate? There, there's no, you know, you're no standing to sue a country to get in. This is 200 years of settled case law on this. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 
one after another. And then, you know, there's news. Th- okay, this is more state court. This is not federal court. But the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania just declared, hey, we're, we're drawing election maps. Whatever most benefits the Democrat Party advantage in the state, that's the law of the land. We have, we have such I – mean, I mean, it, it's amazing. Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution says that state legislatures determine the times, methods, and procedures of elections. Congress was allowed to get involved in the words of Hamilton um, under extraordinary circumstances. But the federal courts and state courts, they have no role to play in this. Except now – they play the role of judge, jury, and executioner over our election laws. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of raunchy stuff going on in the courts. And, you know, hopefully we're going to get some of that. And, and, and by the way, one other thing that, that just bothers me, you know, similar to the concept of, oh, let's let the, you know, violent criminals out of jail, including those that committed crimes with guns. Oh, but then let's take away everyone's guns type of deal is – the opioid crisis. Oh, we got to throw money at the opioid, opioid crisis. Do you know why we have an opioid crisis? Well, there's the prescription side of it, and then there's the illicit drugs, the fentanyl, heroin. On the illicit side, it's fueled by a lack of free market health care. Um, 164-page report from the Senate Oversight Committee on how the Medicaid expansion is fueling it by offering just literally free stuff to people. And it just destroys the delivery of healthcare because rather than having a normal function healthcare system, you just have free money, you know, free drugs, and and all the vendors, whether it's the doctors, whether it's the hospitals, whether it's the pharmacies, they're just taking the money and running. There's no desire to actually diagnose and treat pre- preemptively or um, on a systemic level a, a given il- illness, particularly from those who are who are poor. It just throw money at it. Oh, but now let's throw money at the problem that we created by throwing money at it. That's on the prescription side. And we'll talk about that more as, as healthcare becomes a bigger issue. But on the illicit side, it's the open borders problem we have. There was a great hearing for once. The House Judiciary Committee did a good job bringing in um, our buddy Jessica Vaughn, among some others, sheriff, a sheriff as well, showing how sanctuary cities are fueling the problem. Of the illicit drug crisis. So I want to have more on that later. But again, you know, let's create the problem and then in broad based, you know, net sweeping uh, actions, let's sweep up everyone and infringe upon fundamental rights. That is what a liberal means. That is what a liberal strives for. That's the perverse nature of liberalism. But I mean, this it's just so sad that we have this crisis with immigration in the courts and a general crisis with the courts. There's, there was another, by the way, I, I didn't even get to this, but the 11th Circuit basically said that a, a school, a part, part of Jefferson County outside of Birmingham, Alabama, wanted to create their own school district. So the 11th Circuit said, no, that's racist. You're a bunch of racists and you can't do that. And you might be asking, how does that get to federal court? But the funny thing is, guess who wrote the opinion? Judge William Pryor. He is the golden boy of the so-called conservative legal movement. 
I mean, if you pull these guys, he's either one, number one or near number one for their dream Supreme Court pick if there's another vacancy. So that's what it means to have a conservative judges appointing better judges. We can't even find our own guys that won't score points for the other side. They're codifying the Democrat racialist agenda into the law and constitution. Your local policies are racist. Having immigration laws are racist, so therefore it's in the Constitution. Unbelievable. You you think back to George Washington. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things he said in his inaugural address, is obviously his farewell address, which is something that everyone has to everyone has to read. One of the things he said in his farewell address is very simple. This was in seven, you know, September nineteenth, um, seventeen ninety six. By but the Constitution, which at any time exists, till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacred, obligatory upon, a uh, sacredly obligatory upon all. You can't just engage in a spontaneous amendment process through the courts. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. This is our constitution. This is our legacy. You know, it's funny. Um, also discussing this whole business of, of creating rights for foreign nationals. Uh, one, one of the things I have here from Washington, he wrote in a letter to Hamilton, also um, really in the closing months of his presidency in 1796. He said, quote, whether the present or any circumstances should do more then soften this language may merit consideration. But if we are to be told by a foreign power what we shall do and what we shall not do, we have independence yet to seek and have contended herethro for very little. Folks, we have independence yet to seek over 200 years later, because we have unelected federal judges that now say foreign nationals could dictate the future orientation of our society, the direction of our country. They could get standing through relatives or through refugee resettlement groups, through the ACLU, to sue for an affirmative right to immigrate here. Something that has never happened in the history of nation states. We, we don't have any independence. And by the way, you know, now that we're on the topic of George Washington, just interestingly enough, if you want to know what he thought about immigration, I'm just going to read to you furthermore what he said in his farewell address. Now, it doesn't directly address immigration, but it addresses a lot of the underlying values behind it. Citizens, by birth or choice, of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, notice that word, very slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have in a common cause fought in triumph together. 
the independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. He spoke about common cause and a nation that might be a little different but slight shades of differences. Now, of course, he didn't mean everyone has to be a Christian. Everyone has to be this. Everyone has to be that. He wrote very um, you know, affectionate letters to uh, Mormons and Jews in, in some of his famous uh, letters to various religious leaders. But he always, he obviously understood you couldn't have a balkanized nation. And he never would have envisioned such precipitous immigration from the third world so quickly that we have so much balkanization. But now that we have the courts deciding this, I mean, they, they could never imagine a country electively deciding to do it, but to have it forced upon them by the courts is unbelievable. Wow, this man must be weeping in heaven. Well, anyway, we delved into a lot today. There's a lot more coming this week on a, on a lot of the aforementioned issues. Hopefully, that this phony baloney debate over gun control won't overshadow what we could actually do. But remember, what is political and what is not political is determined by what could actually be addressed through public policy. And if you look very carefully, the things we could actually address are the things least spoken about by our political commentariat, our political class, and the media at large. But that's why you got CR. That's why you got CRTV. That's why you listen to us on Westwood One. You subscribe to our shows here at CRTV. We are determined to cutting through the talking points and harnessing pure common sense to update you on what's actually important, what's actually going on, so you guys could, could, could decide for yourself the course of action. I'll leave you with this final thought. You know, in Coolidge's epic speech in 1927, just celebrating the birth of George Washington, of the father of this country, one of, the, one of his observations is that many others have been able to destroy, but he was able to construct. That was the key. He was a revolutionary, but he was simultaneously able to be the successful steward of that initial leadership of the new country. And that's what we need. Sadly, that revolution has been countermanded by, as, as Levin always says, this bloodless coup over, over the past hundred years of progressivism. We need a constructive vision in terms of ideas, policies, and strategies, how to take it back. And that's, that's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> in a nutshell, that's why I do what I do. I'm still groping around in the dark. But we got to come up with ideas. We can't assume that we still have that constitution that Washington says is, is completely obligatory upon us all until it's changed. And he's right, it is. But it has been changed and we're not doing anything about it. Courts change it every day, and we allow them to do it. And we treat it like the law, and we don't ignore them. That needs to change. So we're going to keep you updated on our new Taxpayer Bill of Rights. We're going to keep you updated on some of these candidates. Hopefully our next episode will be one of these interviews. Let us know your questions as well. Email me, tweet, tweet at me what sort of questions you want to hear demonstrating why these candidates will actually be different from some of the other Republicans and even so-called conservatives that have recently been elected and turned out to be duds. That's a very important thing we need to vet out in these candidates. And again, it's just an all-of-the-above approach. We need to harness that spirit from George Washington. Look forward, as, as um, Washington always said, that to him, the, the and this was in a letter he wrote, 
um, I believe in 1790. To me, there is nothing in it beyond, and this is public service, beyond the lust which may be reflected from its connection with the power of promoting human felicity. And that's what we need to do. The left is into promoting their ideas of making the world better. We need to make the world better by restoring our constitutional system. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.